Kitar, a podcast that focuses on interesting conversations with inspirational people around Qatar. Hello everyone and welcome to this episode for Candid Qatar. My name is Natasha and I'll be your host today. Joining me is Mubarak Wasi. Mubarak is a three-time Asian champion and best speaker. He has led the only Asian team to win the Australasian Championship in its 43-year long history. He was also the first and the only ESL speaker to be crowned the best speaker at the Cambridge InterVarsity Championship. He is now a debate coach at Qatar Debate. So, please join me in welcoming him. Mubarak, we're so happy to have you here. So how old were you when you got into debating? I think I was 15, 16. I was in 10th grade. I was one of those kids who wasn't particularly intelligent uh, when it came to global issues and everything. I wasn't particularly knowledgeable, basically. Right? I was into football. <laughs> Not particularly good, but you know, I was. Uh, cricket and football was my jam and just watching wrestling, the typical teenage boy uh, in that sense. And when, you know, a debating tournament happened, one of the first things, one of the first motions I came across was something like Taiwan should declare independence. And I think my first question was independence from who? Uh, I remember running across the school where the debate tournament was happening, trying to find the school's uh, atlas so we could try to guess where they're trying to get independence from. Um, but I don't know, something stuck in me. I think even though we lost the debate, obviously, um, when we were sitting in the audience watching the finalists speak, I wanted to be able to speak like that, to wanted to know the feeling of speaking to an audience and knowing you did a good job, getting to move people like the way they did. Um, Yeah, so I, I think that made me stick to debating, and that's what I did. Like for a few years, I um, worked on it. I got in the national team. Uh, one of the weird things is the tournament, the World Schools tournament that pitches the pits the best of you know every country's school kids against each other. That year happened to have happen in Doha, um, organized by my current employer, Qatar <laughs> uh, Debate. So. It was it was great. Like I came here, you know, I was at the Marriott, and it was it was an amazing experience trying to get and seeing people from all over the world. The debating could have gone better. We we narrowly missed out on the knockout stages, um, on proceeding to the knockout stages, which made me feel, I suppose, even more determined to come back um, in my university career to make amends. Uh, so tell us more about that. How did you start practicing? Um... How, how did you pick your university? So initially I got into a university in Bangladesh. It's not South University. Um, and so I was there for like a year to a year and a half. And I will digress just a little bit in terms of telling that story. So over there, I quickly got into the team, even in my first year. And I actually made a, uh, had a very close friend called Nibras. From, he was also a first year kid along with me. But he got into the football team as a striker uh, very fast. So, you know, we, were, uh, we became very close. Uh, he was one of those, like, you know, boyish charms, uh, had a dimple, uh, was popular with the girls. And he was one of those kids that was like me when I was a teenager. And all he would talk about was football and girls, basically. And 
one day he did ask me, he asked me why I debated. And I think I was a bit taken off guard. I didn't really know how to answer because I never really thought about why I debated. Maybe a part of me just debated because it was fun or just a part of me just debated because I just wanted to get better and win and beat other people. I didn't really know. Um, and I was taken aback. I, I couldn't really answer him. I just said it was fun for me. Um, and the conversation just moved on. But anyway, so after a year or so, I decided to move. I moved to the International Islamic University in Malaysia. So for two reasons. One was I just really wanted to expand my horizons between, you know, beyond my country. But also uh, the university's debate club was considered one of the best, if not the best in Asia. And it was extremely well-funded. So I wanted to travel the world <laughs> and debate. So that's what I did. So I just went there. Um, honestly, I knew very little about the university except the fact that they were very good in debating. I just found out the rest when I went there. <laughs> um, yeah, I had a, I had a lot of misconceptions, you know. I, I, I thought, like, what's going to happen is when I move immediately, you know, it's going to be non-buffering Wi-Fi, it's going to be world-class facilities, and I went, I went there and I realized, well, that's not happening. I have to go to a cyber cafe to get a good connection. <laughs> um, sorry, this is back in the day, this is before the age of WhatsApp. But yeah, so <laughs> so when I was there, um, one of the trainers, interestingly, was talking about why, you know, the university funded the debating so much. Because it was it was just like, how do you convince a uh, university's debating administration to fund such an activity uh, to such an extent? I was curious. And the answer he gave me was, well, the university has a couple of, you know, goals in terms of funding the debate club. Beyond just the, just the names that the university gives to it. Uh, the debaters give to the university. The first was, that they wanted to show to the Western world that, like, you know, Muslim kids too could, you know, participate in peaceful dialogue and discussion and come to constructive solutions. And in particular, I think that was relevant just because the university is just so heavy with the Muslim diaspora. Um, it has, you know, especially a lot of the countries with uh, refugee populations are facing some kind of dilemma. A lot of those students, so you have Somalis, Afghans, Kashmiris, uh, Eastern Europeans, like you know, your Albanian diaspora spread across Eastern Europe, uh, Yemeni, Syrians, all of them, like there's more than 150 countries, students over there. Um, so, so that resonated. And the second one was that it was more, a bit more inward looking, which was that they wanted to help create more progressive um, minded global citizens uh, who could be critical thinkers. Um, and so they also recognized that internally we had a problem and that needed to change a little bit. I guess when I heard it, I didn't really connect to it. <laughs> to be honest, I was just like, okay, whatever, as long as you pay me to travel um, and I can go to tournaments. But I would say that over time, I realized a few things. Um, got a few reality checks, I suppose. Uh, one of my first tournaments, I was... Uh, uh, international tournaments. I was in a stall. I was uh, sitting down inside. And then I heard a couple of people speaking outside. Uh, there were judges in the tournament. And at one point, one of them said to the other, um, if I had to judge, if I have to judge one more Asian team, I'm going to shoot myself. And uh, I mean, at that point, I just wanted to shout, you know, your face makes me want to shoot myself. But of course, I didn't. Uh, instead, 
you know, when I came on, made eye contact with them, it, it, it stuck. The discriminatory, the discriminatory tone stuck and it stuck quickly. And, you know, I've had a few of these incidents over the years, not just on a personal level, but I think it hurt more like when I was coaching a kid last year. Um, she was um, a, you know, in the World Schools competition, actually. And, you know, one of the judges asked her, you know, if she could remove the shaler when she was speaking because he thought it was distracting for her speech. Um, one morning, I woke up to a bunch of texts, messages from people who were just asking me if I knew Nibras. I was a bit confused and to find out, you know, I immediately just opened his Facebook. Um, and I had like more than 400 mutual friends with him, but that morning it was like 16 or 17 something. So I was like, okay, what's happening? And eventually I found out that the night before, Nibras, along with five of his friends, had walked into a cafe inspired by ISIS and tortured and murdered 23 people. I mean, I couldn't believe that like, Nibras could do something like that, right? Like, he, he gave up the vibe that he couldn't hurt a fly. And um, like I was crestfallen, but it got me thinking. Like, what if, why hadn't I engaged him in some form of critical thinking, in some form of discussion that was not football or goals, you know? And um, what if I had answered him that day differently? Like, would he have got an interest in debating? If he did, would he have been different? Um, but I guess there was no, you know, there's no point thinking about the past. Um, but these incidents slowly, I, make you determined to sort of think that the benefits that you get out of debating could not just be for you. Um, but there was no point in just, you know, getting a lot of these things for yourself if you didn't help in getting some others to also accrue some of these benefits for themselves. And uh, I think those kinds of incidents made me sure that I wanted to be a trainer at some point. And I became a trainer at my university after a while. And um, uh, I remember one incident where there was this Macedonian boy of Albanian descent. He, when he was 12 years old, sorry if I'm going off an event. Um, no, no. But when he was 12 years old, basically, he was um, playing football with his friends and suddenly bombs started falling on him. Um, and, you know, he, he ran and then hid in his house's basement for a few days with his family. And when they and it eventually came out, he found out that, you know, many of his friends had died. So basically his own country's government bombed him and their community for being religious minorities there. And so when he first came to the university, he said, you know, I hate Macedonians. And obviously I didn't agree with the hate, but I didn't know how I could tell him that he was wrong. You know, that felt like invalidating his experiences. But over time, even he changed, right? Um, one, in, in one of his later years, he said, you know, I don't actually hate Macedonians. I think the Macedonian government just needs to change. Um, and today he's running for elections in Macedonia. So you have these, you know, uh, little stories as well. You, you know, the kid that was told that she needed to remove a shaler um, recently, you know, won a European university debate competition. Uh, she was the first Qatari to ever, you know, uh, win a competition, let alone such a competitive one, 
against some of the best debaters of the world. Um, the even the judge in the in the toilet basically um, I was you know speaking at the Cambridge Union um, towards the end of my career and it was just one of those highlights which is like you know you're standing in the center of the Cambridge Union um, and luckily for me the motion I think had something to do with the Islam so um, it was one of my better speeches and as I was sitting down I saw a couple of people um, and then a few more start to give me a standing ovation and you know one of those people was that judge and I guess at that moment I thought to myself maybe he doesn't mind judging Asian teams anymore but yeah I, I guess the point is that I think people can change uh, people do change um, and there's no point to me just you know concentrating on myself if I don't help some of them change in some way or another because if I can change that much so can they yeah. that's very inspiring um, could you also tell us about your other friend who's now the minister in Malaysia? Uh, Sadiq. Uh, so, yeah, uh, he's no longer the minister in Malaysia because Malaysian politics is... Uh, um, basically, they had a government switch. Uh, coalitions changed, and so he's out of power. <laughs> um, but, yeah, so uh, you're referring to Sadiq, who was my teammate for many years during my university career. Um, when I initially went, he was one of those people... That was like, oh, you know, you have a lot of potential. And then he was like a semester ahead of me, but he was already the star, you know, debate of the university. And he identified me as his long-term teammate. I was a bit surprised myself. I didn't know why he thought I could, you know, be that great. Um, but he saw something in me that I didn't at the time. Um, and I think he was, you know, he did it right. So he was one of those obsessed people. He would always knock on my door asking me how, how many articles I had read of The Economist. Um, I'll just give you a couple of examples of how obsessed he was to improvement. One of them was we would go jogging sometimes. Um, it would fat shame me because I was putting on a few pounds. But anyway, friends, it was, it was all in good um, chest. So we would go jogging, and as you jog, you listen to music like a normal person. Um, but then he would do a couple of things. Sometimes he would listen to Economist audio articles while he was running. Or sometimes he would ask me, Mubad, give me a couple of motions and I will prepare <laughs> both Kevin off or properly in opposition for these motions while we do our run. <laughs> and then at the end of the run, he would tell me his cases. Um, so Sadiq was obsessed with practicing. How much would you practice? So I think I practiced more than the average person, but compared to Sadiq, it was, he was never satisfied with how much I practiced. Um, it was a weird turn for me because growing up, I had been the Sadiq to other people. Mm. I had been the one who was telling my teammates, oh, you know, you, you should read up enough, you know, let's more, do more practice rounds. But once I came across Sadiq, it was just like he was not satisfied with my level of practice, with my level. And it was really surprising for me. But I, I think because he was a friend, I, could, I would just joke and, you know, like, shift him aside, but he would still pressure. There, was a, there were instances where, he, in the evening, he would drive to campus, um, go into one of the classrooms and record himself speaking, uh, just give, like, at 10 p.m., 11 p.m., 12 a.m., he's inside campus giving a speech in a random classroom and recording himself. 
and he's coming back with all the recordings and watching himself on the laptop, like what he's doing. Uh, we had fun. We had a lot of fun editing some of his videos to make fun of him. But yeah. <laughs> so you started off in your first year and you ended up becoming the president of the debate club, right? Um, could you tell us more about like coaching students? So I think one of the big things that I learned from coaching was like initially I was very ruthless in terms of uh, how much who I would think that I could identify who was going to be good and who was not going to be good. So, but over time I learned that I was looking at the wrong attributes for who I could train to be a better debater. Um, initially it was a lot of, you know, whoever just sounds more well-spoken in the initial training I got, you know, and like, you know, I, I could change this person. But a lot of debaters surprised me. A lot of debaters I thought who wouldn't make it big um, were the ones who made it big and others didn't. It's because they were more dedicated. They were more willing to listen to what I was saying and not in a superficial sense, but were actually to go back and try to implement it in the next training. So yeah, initially I would think that whoever was well-spoken was the person who would become a better trainer. I could work with them a lot more. But over time, a lot of people surprised me. So different people who maybe took the training a bit more to heart, like not in a superficial sense, but would actually work to like implement it in their work, in, in their speeches. There were people who were uh, dedicated in a more, uh, initially, a lot of people did not improve for a period of time. And I would think, oh, no, nothing's going to happen. But for a lot of people, if they worked hard long enough, later on, suddenly they would have huge bursts of improvements. And that's not something, you know, I, I would, you know, realize. Um, another thing was people with language barriers. Um, that's definitely very, very hard for people with language barriers, like who, is, who are not speaking English as a first language or are sometimes speaking English as a foreign language. For them, it's very difficult. And, you know, maybe I would be too fast to think of they're not going to, you know, make it. But some of them really surprised me. Um, I guess the second thing that I perhaps knew but became reinforced with coaching was perhaps it's not so much to do with the content that a coach gives uh, because a lot of different people can teach what you are teaching. But it has more to do with the culture you create and um, whether or not people feel empowered by you, whether or not people feel like you support them, whether or not people feel... Um, that you are there for them to create that environment where they can work on themselves, they can um, have that room for error as well, like where they feel comfortable making mistakes, experimenting to be able to improve themselves. I think that's the coaching element. Um, for just being president of the club, I, I, um, I suppose it's more of a leadership role and uh, particularly for a club of that size, which is like a much larger debate club. I mean, for university students, it's a big deal to have like a 50 per person uh, debate club under you with like a million ringgit budget. Like it's a huge deal for a kid to, to take care of. And I think one of the things was, again, with leadership, it was just about that culture, right? If you are there all the time, it's not necessarily like, you know, what kind of policies you're making. But if you are around, if you're listening to people, can you name everyone in the debate club as the first question? If you're not, you're not a leader. Um, if you, can you, does, do people feel comfortable talking to you about their issues? Uh, if not, then you're not a leader. And I guess the final thing, which perhaps I wish I succeeded in a little bit more than I did, was ensuring some form of succession. So I think one of the pitfalls of becoming like a famous or like a, you know, 
someone who people look up to a lot is what happens after you're gone are you making sure like if anything a good leader is someone who won't be missed after they've left um and i think that's something that you know probably something i i would could have done better so what did you do after graduating from university i initially joined uh, maybank which was uh, malaysia's largest bank as like a global graduate so i went to a case co- business case competition essentially uh, in kuala lumpur and um they they offered me a job and i did not want to go back to bangladesh i i loved living in malaysia i had made so many friends um I really thought, wanted to live in KL. It was it was an it's an amazing city to be honest. Uh, the food, the everything is just amazing. Um and I wanted to stay. So when I got the job offer, it was a good job offer and it's a bit hard for foreigners to get, you know, jobs anywhere I assume in Malaysia as well. And when I did go the job, so I thought why not? And I was honestly quite ready to just um you know, leave debating um maybe transition out in a couple of years do a little bit of judging do a little bit of coaching but slowly just tune out and just focus on a banking career or wherever it took me okay and then how did you decide to move to qatar debate so because the job i was doing was you would get assigned for like a period of 2 to 3 months to a department you worked there and then you moved to another department so you learn about the bank before you know becoming permanent somewhere um in a specific department and while i was in one of those stints i wasn't having a good time not to say that that particular stint made me think oh banking is not for me um i wanted to be the person who could you know stick it out uh i suppose but it did get me thinking in terms of like sure in 3 months things will get better and i will go to a better you know um a, a, a department that would be a better fit for me and and i and i did like i eventually went to a uh, to a boss that i that i really liked um and actually when i moved to Qatar debate I was actually working for a boss that I really liked in Malaysia but it did get me thinking in terms of like maybe I had it a little bit wrong maybe I thought that you know you just had to go gung ho in your career and you just had to stick it out and it doesn't matter how bad it gets um that's just what it is supposed to be you know like you just you just have to do a job don't complain so I felt like maybe I had deluded myself into having a little bit of a maybe it's a strong word but a little bit of a toxic mentality in terms of like how i thought about self care um and when that happened i thought you know what there is a not so tread path in terms of like being a debate coach and care- and having a career and you know there are companies established with you know good job offers for this kind of people and i did connect to coaching like i loved coaching and i loved training and i love developing people and you know tapping into human potential and especially for people who don't have a lot of access i love it like if someone can beat someone else who is a lot more privileged than them uh in many ways then that's 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 that that's what gives me joy so i i decided why not so i applied um to qatar debate as well as a company in china um and eventually i got the offer in my qatar debate and even though obviously i gave it a little bit of thought should i leave should i not um but ultimately i don't think i would have decided otherwise in any permutation of that decision making process um and i also but i have to give due credit to my previous boss as well who encouraged you know who said you don't know 10 years later what's going to happen like if the bank you're in will even exist right but so do what you like and 
But at the same time, of course, you have to make yourself adaptable to the future. So as long as you keep upskilling yourself, you'll be fine. Just go. And here I am and I'm loving life. Yeah. <laughs> um, do you have any future plans? Well, but hopefully I'll get to keep a job during the pandemic. <laughs> That's the first future plan. Um, but we don't know. You know, we will see. 2021 might be worse. So <laughs> as, a, as a joke, hopefully only. <laughs> apart from that, for now, I'm happy where I am. Obviously, that doesn't mean that I'll be, you know, sticking to the same thing full time. But for now, no, I don't have a specific future plan. Obviously, there are permutations of what I may end up doing. Probably adopt a few cats and uh, have that. That's a second future plan. I'm obviously thinking about masters, but I don't want to just do a masters just because everyone else is doing a masters. Um, if it fits in with what I want to do, if it fits in with in the future, if I want to move somewhere else, maybe um, uh, New Zealand seems pretty great at the moment. But um, if it fits in to what I want to do in the future, then I will consider more academic options. Um, and you never know. Maybe you know, uh, I will find myself back in Bangladesh, even though I don't think now. Anything can happen, honestly. Yeah. Mubarak, thank you so much for taking your time with us and sharing like your heartwarming and very interesting story. Um, to our audience members at home, thank you for listening and make sure to stay tuned for other episodes.